the old gospel story we left off two weeks ago with the story of Israel deciding that they wanted a king like all the nations of the earth. And if you know the subsequent story, uh, they basically chose a king after their own liking, after their own image, this man named Saul. And as the story advances, God brings forth a second king, David, who is the king after his own heart. And we want to think tonight about chapter 7 and what it has to tell us about God's grace towards David. So let me just read the first 17 verses, and then we will begin our study after I pray. So listen now as God does speak to us through his perfect word. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I'll make of you a great name, like the name of the great ones of all the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I'll give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house." And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be a father to him. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again together. Father, we are grateful that you speak to us by your word that is perfect, that is powerful, that is precious to us. A word of the covenant now. And so we pray that you would speak. For your servants indeed are listening. Help us to listen with faith, with hearts eager to follow you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may be seated. It was sometime in the late 90s that Christianity Today asked their readers to submit names for those authors, teachers, 
preachers that had most influenced them, but those names needed to be 20th century authors, preachers, and teachers, because as the magazine was facing the end of the 20th century, they wanted to know which authors, preachers, and teachers uh, had shaped American evangelicals in our country. And so as the names came in, they started taking count and keeping tally along the way, and not surprisingly, uh, certainly at that time and space, uh, the number one name was the name of an English author. His name was C.S. Lewis. And the number two name was the name of another English author, this one named J.I. Packer. And some of you know Packer's name. Some of you have surely read Packer's books, or at least one of Packer's books. His classic work was originally published in 1973. It's a book that's called Knowing God. And he said in the preface to that book, he said, Ignorance of God both of God's ways and of the practice of communion with God lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. Ignorance of God lies at much of the root of the church's weakness today. So some 25 years on from Packer's conclusion, or I should say actually more like 50 years on from Packer's conclusion there in the preface, I wonder if you think that the church of our country Ordinary gospel preaching churches are any better when it comes to awareness of God, who he is and his ways and his works. Or might we, much like Packer's assessment, find ourselves rather weak because we we don't know what it means to know God's character and have daily, frequent, and vibrant communion with him. And the reason I tell you that is because when we come to 2 Samuel 7, we come to what is no doubt the, the climax of David's spiritual life. Uh, This gracious promise that's given to David from the covenant king Yahweh. And it's a chapter, uh, like many in the Old Testament, perhaps in a summit-like fashion, though, helps us understand who God is and what it means to follow God in faith and and in trust. Because what we have here is spelled out before us, what we theologically refer to as the Davidic covenant. And, And that word covenant, children, Covenant is one of the greatest words that you can ever come across in the Bible. A covenant is a, it's a sovereign word. Covenant is a, it's a sure word. It's a, it's a sweet word. But if you were paying attention to 2 Samuel 7, you might have noticed that nowhere does God use the word covenant for all of these promises that he is speaking to David. Uh, but you just need to know, for our purposes tonight, if you were to just kind of advance the story forward in Second Samuel, eventually you'll get to chapter 23, you'll find David there facing down death, and he speaks in chapter 23, verse 5 of this covenant, saying that Yahweh has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and secure. And even the psalm we just sang a moment ago, Psalm 89, it speaks of this promise that's in our text tonight, verse 3 of Psalm 89, I've made a covenant With my chosen one, I have sworn to David, my servant. So what we're wanting to think about in our gospel story before us this evening is a story about a covenant, and we're going to notice it in two simple parts. First, and quite quickly, we'll see David's plan, and we'll spend most of our time thinking about God's promise to David. 
So just to bring you up to speed from where we left off two weeks ago in the Old Testament story, by this point, of course, David is king, anointed not only in Israel, but also in Judah. If you glance down at verse one, it's clear that this man who was a warrior king, uh, this man who had much blood on his hands, well, he's finally at rest in the land, and it seems like one day, perhaps it's one evening, he's sitting around his palace that is peaceful with his good friend, the prophet Nathan, And he's looking at something that seems altogether inconsistent, and it is what reveals David's plan. For notice verse 2, he says to Nathan, See, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And students, I do hope you know, as the chapter goes on to uncover, that from the time of the Exodus, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, uh, God had always been uh, with his people in this temporary tent called the tabernacle. It was a place of mobile meeting with Yahweh. He would go wherever they go in this temporary tent. And David's looking around his palace. He's looking around his place of permanence, his place of peace. And he's saying, oh, this is seemingly, isn't it, inconsistent? Why is it that that I get to live in a house beautiful with cedar? And Yahweh is there in just this temporary tent. And his desire seems quite good to the prophet Nathan. Notice verse 3. He says, go. And do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. So that's David's plan. He wants to build a house. Significantly, he wants to build a permanent house that is in accord with the splendor and the beauty and the majesty uh, of his Lord. And the rest of the text that we're thinking about tonight, it moves from David's plan to God's promise. Because notice what happens in verse 4 and 5, the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. He said, go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Verse 6 continues, I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Egypt, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. By all appearances, it seems right for us to assume, doesn't it, that David's desire... To build a house for God was a good one. It it was a noble one. It was one that even the prophet Nathan, walking with the Lord, says, go. Do all that you desire within your heart. And then God comes along and says, hold on a second. Not so fast. Eh. When did I ever, you notice verse 7, when did I ever tell people of old, judges of old, leaders of old, governors there in Israel, when did I ever tell them, why haven't you yet built me a house? And so what he begins by telling Nathan to tell David is the Lord is underscoring his contentment with the situation. I'm quite content in this temporary tent. When did I ever ask for a house of cedar, a permanent place of royalty and splendor? And I hope you know that there are times, aren't there, that we can have these noble, good desires to serve the Lord. And he might come along and say, not so fast. Uh, what seems wise to us in God's purpose and divine promise and plan is actually out of accord with what he wants to do. And so even what he often wants to do, as we're going to soon see in the situation before us in 2 Samuel 7, is he wants to do something uh, better, uh, more wonderful in anything than David can imagine. And so the Lord's contentment now leads to what really we want to spend our time on tonight, which is the Lord's Covenant, because look at what he says in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to David my servant, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture 
from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. You've gone from the pasture to the palace, David, and I want to do something for you. You want to do something for me, David? I'm going to do something for you. It reminds me of a story that one a father in our congregation told me once where he was preparing for his son's birthday. And as those of you parents with young children uh, can certainly sympathize with this father, in the weeks and months leading up to the birthday, this particular child was always telling the dad, I want this for my birthday. Dad, I just want this. Of all the things you could get me, Dad, I want this for my birthday. And so when it came to the birthday, Dad pulled out the present that he had bought and had gotten for the child and slid it across the table. And with zeal and earnestness, the child began to tear open the wrapping paper, tear open the box, and there in front of him was something not at all that he had asked his dad for the birthday. But the response was, it's better than anything I could have ever thought of. And that's exactly what you need to know God is doing here with David. Whatever David thought he would do for Yahweh, it's going to so far pale in comparison to what Yahweh says, I'm going to do for you, David. Because he moves from expressing his contentment, this temporary tent, it's just fine, to give David this covenant grace. And I want you to see three things about the covenant grace in verse 9 through 17. First of all, God promises to David the supremacy of his name. You see that, don't you, in verse 9. He says, I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of all the earth. David, after you die, after you're long gone, centuries into the future, people are still going to say what? King David was great in the Lord. Even for our own time, isn't it? Thousands of years into the future. God promises supremacy of his name. Number two, safety of David's house. Because you see, he kind of references in verse 10 into verse 11 that the people of his pasture he was going to plant in a particular place. Then he says at the end of verse 11, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So that's the nature of the covenant there with David, isn't it? It all begins with David's plan. I want to make a house for the Lord. Yahweh comes along through Nathan and says, no, hold on a second. I'm going to make a house for you. You're not going to make my house. I'm going to make your house. Place of supremacy, a place of safety, but most centrally to this covenant and God's covenant grace towards David is the third part of this covenant promise, which is the rest of this middle section of our chapter before us, and that is the surety of David's line. It's not just the supremacy of his name and the safety of his house, as wonderful as those things are. God says, I'm going to ensure the surety of your line. Uh, Years ago, when my wife Emily was pregnant with our first child, my paternal grandmother, Grandma Stone, she, you know, sidled up to me at some sort of family gathering. She had heard that Emily was pregnant. This was going to be her first great-grandchild. And she's always called me my entire life, Jordy. And so she says, she said, Jordy, I'm really praying that what you have is a son. Because you know, Jordy, if you don't have a son, the Stone family line is going to die out with you. Which is actually true in our household. And so it was a few weeks later, actually, that I came to Grandma and Grandpa and I said, guess what? We just found out that the first child is a boy. 
She was smiling from ear to ear. Second child comes along. Guess what, Grandma? Another boy. Third child comes along. Grandma, another boy. Fourth child comes along. Grandma, we've got a fourth son on the way. And it was at that point she said, okay, great, wonderful. The line is good. <laughs> and when the, the fifth pregnancy came, by God's blessing upon us, she said, you know, Jordy, I'm so happy with all these great-grandsons, but what about a little girl this time? <laughs> and sure enough, in God's providence, Grandma, guess what? Fifth one is a girl. And then God gave us a sixth one. And my grandmother still remarks about all of that as she's facing down death now in her mid-90s. Because to Grandma Stone, the family line, it was very important. To an ancient Israelite like David, the surety of the family line was everything to someone like David. So when you hear what's getting ready to come from Yahweh through Nathan to David, what you need to think what was flooding into David's heart surely was just the most astonishing, amazing grace of God. Because notice what he's told in verse 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. We know as the story continues, that's Solomon, no doubt. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see verse 14, 15, and 16. There's supposed to be obedience and faithfulness that this line is to extend towards Yahweh, lest the rod of discipline fall upon him. And you'll see at the end of verse 16, your house and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So that's the nature of, of this covenant. That's the story of this covenant. It's one of supremacy. It's one of safety. It's one of surety. David, one of your offspring will dwell on the throne forever. Now, if you know the story of Israel, you know that it didn't always seem like God was going to be faithful to that promise. So you can advance the story forward, say to chapter 24 of this book. Uh, at that time, uh, the nation of Israel and Judah have divided. The northern kingdom has done their thing. The southern kingdom is hanging on, going this slow slide into its idolatry, into its iniquity. And at that point, uh, the line of David, the man of David, the son of David, seated there on the throne is a man named Zedekiah. So Assyria had already carted off the northern kingdom by this point. Uh, and we know that Judah is now facing God's rod of discipline in the form of Babylon. God's raised up this king named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is coming against Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, when Zedekiah is on the throne. And if you know the story, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes and he lays seeds to Jerusalem. And for a year, God's people waste away under the siege. Zedekiah is eventually taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And he's set up, we don't know exactly if he's standing there in that moment, or he's seated there in that moment. And then before his eyes, the Babylonians bring all of Zedekiah's sons. So the entire line of David and kills one son after another. And then what do they do? They put out Zedekiah's eyes. And so the last thing that he sees is the apparent death of David's line. And so I even later on in Psalm 89 verse 49, the psalmist can say, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? by which your faithfulness swore to David for over 500 years. There's no Davidic king on the throne. That seems as though what? God's promise 
has failed. The covenant has collapsed. But kids, if you opened your Bible tonight to the first verse of the first book of the New Testament, you would find in Matthew's gospel this, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Do you know the next phrase? Son of David. The second chapter and the second verse of the same book, the Magi from the East, what happens? They come and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That God actually all along has been working his covenant promise to the place of perfect fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's why even to the Virgin Mary, Gabriel can say in Luke chapter 1, that your son will be great. The Lord will give to him what? The throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Uh, Maybe you sit in here tonight and you think about the many promises that God has given to you in his word, the many promises that he has assured of you in Jesus Christ, but you think like those centuries of Israelites, well, doesn't it feel as though uh, the promise is failing? Does it seem as though that the Lord's sure word is collapsing? For it doesn't seem as though God is pulling through, getting through, cutting through in faithfulness to his promise. Yet, It's always yes and amen in Jesus Christ that he is the one who guarantees, doesn't he? The supremacy of the name, the safety of the house, and the surety of the line that any sinner that comes to Jesus Christ turning from their sin and trusting in him, what happens? The sinner is made into a citizen of that eternal kingdom on which the son of David will reign forever and ever. So how then should people like you and me respond to a story of a covenant? A story of a covenant that culminates in Jesus Christ. Well, if you glance at the second half of 2 Samuel 7, you'll see David's response falls into two simple parts. And it's those parts, David's response, that I want to let us end with tonight. First of all, what we're meant to see from this story of a covenant is that we're to respond to God's covenant grace with praise. Respond to God's covenant grace with praise. Notice verse 18. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David recognizes, doesn't he? He doesn't deserve anything that has just been promised to him. It's all of grace, and so he can pour forth the praise. Notice verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. What's the most ordinary thing? for Christians to do when confronted with the covenant-making and covenant-keeping character of God. They praise him. And I wonder if this week, growing in gratitude towards God's greatness has marked your days more than grumbling over the lot that he has given you. Or celebrating his, his character more than complaining about the circumstances that God has brought into your life. Praising God, it's the normal response. Praising God is the air in which true believers, even those who have received the covenant grace, well, they respond with praise. And, and secondly, you notice what David does in the rest of Second Samuel 7. It's that he responds to God's covenant word with prayer. That's verse 25 through 28. He's just praying for the Lord's covenant promise to come to pass. It's why he can say, notice verse 29. Now, therefore, may it please you, to bless the house of your servants so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, 
shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. He's saying little more than God, make it true. So maybe for some of you in the room tonight, the, the simplest response to a story about a covenant that culminates in Jesus Christ is a prayer for God's covenant grace, is a prayer for God's covenant mercy that's nothing more than the simple utterance of blind Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And if you look to that covenant king with the eyes of faith for mercy, the assurance is you will receive it. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would bend your ear towards us even this night in the midst of a week that has no doubt been full of striving to be faithful to the calling that you have given to each one of us, strivings that have often found us failing to be obedient. We thank you that there is mercy and grace found in Jesus Christ, the Son of David, he himself who is the covenant. So let us know something of his mercy this night. Let us know something of his comfort. Let us know something of the amazing grace that's ours in the true Son of David, in whose name we pray. Amen.